Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey everyone, my name is Emily Friedlander and you're listening to episode five of the Thump Podcast. Every week we bring together a panel of Thump editors to discuss the people and stories shaping contemporary electronic music and nightlife with the occasional special guests. Do you guys all want to introduce yourselves? Sure, I'm Michelle Luke. I'm the features editor here at Thump. I'm Colin Joyce, the managing editor. I'm Ezra Marcus. I'm an associate editor. And I'm Emily, the editor-in-chief. Today we'll be talking about some recent trips Thump took to South by Southwest in Austin, in addition to Madrid and Lisbon. We'll also be chatting about rumors in New York of a crackdown on nightlife in the city following last year's tragic ghost ship fire in Oakland. And finally, a recent announcement by SoundCloud that the DJs and producers uploading mixes and remixes to the streaming site will now be able to monetize them. Before we get into all that, do you guys want to tell me what you've been listening to this week? I've been listening to a new compilation on Pan called Monono Aware. It's an ambient compilation. The title translates to an empathy toward things, the pathos of things, or a sensitivity to ephemera. I guess the idea is that it's music that's supposed to make you focus on the details of the composition, which is cool because a lot of ambient compositions from people that don't traditionally make ambient music are just like a guy leaning on a dreamy synth pad for four minutes at a time and calling that a rap. But the Pan compilation doesn't do that. So Pan is a label based in Berlin that's kind of always been at the avant-garde of electronic music since they were the founding about half decade ago. The compilation has new artists to Pan, like Maya Gomez, who's previously released on Non, and um, returning favorites to the Pan label, like Eve Toomer and ADR. The emphasis is on detail, like lots of movement and small, intricate things happening in the pieces in contrast to the like dreamier, longer things that traditionally happen in ambient songs. The most extreme version of that is from TCF. His piece takes inspiration from this thing called Black MIDI, which is the idea of taking minuscule MIDI notes and placing them on a staff so close together that it just looks like blackness. So it's like thousands of notes coming together to make one note. It's like a chaos producing stillness. It's it's a cool idea. Awesome. Ezra? I've been listening exclusively to the Drake album or <laughs> playlist, whatever you want to call it, that came out this week. From the first two days of listening to it, it's might be one of my top two or three favorite Drake releases. It's a vindication, I think, after disappointing views last year. 
And I think you can tell that he, as always, has been listening to the feedback because Views really was a failure because of all these like self-indulgent songs that were just not particularly groundbreaking production. And he was just moping. It, it, it didn't really feel alive. But the three songs that were hits were all interpolating Caribbean sounds. You had Too Good, Controla, and One Dance, of course which are the three songs that really found Drake participating in this kind of global diaspora pop thing. And it's like he took the positive reception that those songs got and used that as the core of this new project, which finds him rapping over Afrobeat on the Frank Dukes produced Madiba rhythm and over more kind of dance hall light stuff like on Blem. He works with several grime vocalists like Giggs and Skepta. And it's just this global pop sound is really easy to listen to. And it seems like something he's a lot more comfortable doing, where he really is kind of like a taste leader and a taste maker among major pop stars. I mean, you're not going to find a single other major pop star who's going to put an American teen in Nebraska onto like a South African house producer like Black Coffee or a relatively obscure at least in America, British rapper or an Afrobeat rhythm that just like is not something that you would normally encounter in the milieu of American pop music. And for that to be like something that teens are listening to in the middle of the country is just fascinating to me. And Drake gets a lot of heat for the way that he does fake accents, which uh, he does. He mean, he, you know, he uses (laughs) British slang. It's corny. But at the end of the day, you got to love it. I mean, he just really wants to like participate in these things. He's excited, like his excitement just translates to me. I get excited listening to his like childlike glee at being able to say "waste man" on a track, <laughs> and it makes me feel good. Cool, Michelle. How about you? I've been listening to Perkin Truss's remixes of Mum Dance and Logos. Both of them are awesome, sort of London-based duos that also do music individually. And what I really like about it is that Mom Dunce and Logos typically make more grimy, clubby music and Perk and Trust make more techno. And so to see this sort of raw genre collaboration happening is always really fun because I feel like usually these scenes are really splintered. And when you find someone who listens to like hardcore techno, um, like I, I saw, I actually saw Perk at Output last weekend and he was just slamming it out. It was amazing. But I guarantee you that everyone who was at that show does not really listen to Mom Dance and Logos, you know? So it was cool to sort of see them breaking down the boundaries of these scenes that sometimes feel really splintered. I've also been listening to this really random album that someone sent me called Kunst. And it's sort of like uh, Indonesian gamelan music meeting funky drumming jazzy stuff. And to me, I think that's really interesting. I grew up listening to a bit of gamelan music because my mother's from Indonesia. And it evokes that strong feelings of home in Southeast Asia for me, but to hear it used in this completely different context where it's like jazzy and like very modernized, I guess, is is really refreshing. And I was talking about this the other day with someone and I sort of feel like gamelan music is becoming a trend. Yeah, I've definitely seen people play it at shows over the last couple of years. Totally. There have been some big reissues, like some stuff on Sean McCann's recital records, I think put out a gamelan record um, mm. from the 70s. I don't know if 
trends exactly the right word, but it's definitely in the air. It's trendy. <laughs> well, I think what's beautiful about gamelan music is that when you play it, like it's not just one note; it's multiple notes all at the same time, and it sort of sounds like it occupies a very like fat space that's neither major or minor and kind of both at the same time. I'm, I, I'm probably not being very articulate right now, but there's sort of a an innate complexity to it. And a sort of mystery to me. It reminds me of like being in Bali and driving past darkened temples late at night and hearing this sort of like really beautiful ghostly gamelan music like floating out. Could be totally wrong about the Sean McCann thing. So any like real gamelan heads out there on Twitter, please don't tell me <laughs> don't if I'm wrong. <laughs> yeah. So for me, I just came back from an epic week at South by Southwest. I was epic. A, <laughs> I was supposed to well epic time wise. I was supposed to only be there Tuesday to Saturday, but because of a snowstorm that actually never came that much to fruition. I had to move my flight to Sunday. So that's about six days of live music. And building with your fam. And building with my fam. There was a lot of building. (laughs) And uh, it was a lot. And I joked a lot with people about how Austin is supposed to be the city of music or the city of live music. And I just love this idea of like, live music in itself being like a generic category of thing that somebody would want to experience at all things like at all times so like a lot of the storefronts are just like live music here live music there but I took in a lot one of the first events I went to was actually um, Moog Fest's South by Southwest event which had a cool panel on the bathroom laws featuring some politicians and thinkers and artists. Because Moogfest happens in North Carolina, where that's a going concern. Yeah, so I think there was the general counsel of the governor of North Carolina there for some opening statements. And then there is also, I think, a city council member from Austin who is a openly gay city council member who was talking about that discussion in terms of Texas. And it was really cool. And there was a fantastic set by Suzanne Chiani, who I think is playing at the Durham Festival as well. But I had never actually seen her play before. And I was there with a friend and it felt very quadraphonic. I think there were just speaker. I think there was just quadraphonic speakers or is that four speakers around? So it was like just the most amazing beats and textures flying from all different directions, depending on where you stood. It sounded different. And a friend I was with was like, how is she making these sounds? Is this like all, is this giant modular synthesizer she's using hooked up to like a secret keyboard somewhere? And I was like, I don't think so. And I crept up um, on the side of the stage and I didn't really see one because it's like actual musical, it's musical notes, it's tones, it's beats, but there's no drum machine and there's no... There's no traditional keyboard, and it's all done through taking tones and passing them through different filters. It was just amazing. And then a couple days later, or the next day, I can't remember, it's all a blur, I went to see a documentary about her that was really, really cool. And what I didn't realize about her was that in addition to being someone that a lot of younger synth-obsessed people are really into, she had a really, really long career in advertising, commercial music, and that she actually, she was doing like Coca-Cola commercials and all these major brands, and she was really helping build 
the sound design of television. So like in old Coca-Cola commercials, they weren't actual like bubbling sounds. They were bubbling sounds that were made by Suzanne Ciani with a modular synthesizer. That's so sick. And she kind of pioneered the idea of bringing these modular synthesizers, which were more from an academic university context, into the market. Another one was like a potato chip. Yeah, that totally. She made potato chip sound. Like crunching sounds. Yeah, she could make a more appealing crunching sound of a potato chip using machines than an actual potato chip. You don't get all those nasty lip sounds in there that way. (laughs) Totally. Yeah, that was really the first set that I saw all week and probably the most memorable of them all. She definitely doesn't use any keyboards in her work. That's the big split between Buchla and Moog synthesizers back in the day is that Buchla was very, like, we shouldn't be bound by the ways that we've played instruments before because this is a whole new thing. So you're just going to do it by interacting with this weird interface that I've designed. He had all these strange names for the knobs and stuff like that, like source of randomness and stuff like that. (laughs) That's not exactly it, but it's something like that. And the idea is that you're just like shaping the sound rather than playing notes, but she does get totally beautiful sounds out of it. She's done some like classical composition work too. Slash new age. Yeah type stuff that was with a piano and like orchestra. Absolutely. And I think that that shows in the stuff that she's doing now. I'm curious like what you thought of South by Southwest in general this year. I've been hearing a lot of stuff about people saying, you know, it's dead, like nobody goes anymore. And I think it's sort of part of this really interesting larger trend of these big tech and music conferences, people just getting really fatigued by them. I think people are saying the same thing about Coachella and about Miami Music Week. And people seem to be more interested in festivals like Moog or smaller festivals in general, rather than these big corporate conventions. But I also heard that this year there weren't as many sort of big brands or PR companies going to South by. So there were also sort of whispers that maybe it will be cooler this year because it'll be smaller. I don't know. What was your impression? Yeah, that was the dominant narrative that people seem to be hawking or <laughs> prior to South by Southwest. Maybe there was a billboard article about how it was going to be smaller this year. And I was prepared for that, like, oh, it's going to be smaller and less corporate and then therefore more fun. And I've been going to South by Southwest, I think this was my seventh year. Like, I skipped one, but it was my seventh year. And when I first went there, there was a big split between East Austin being much more DIY and then the other side of the highway being much more official. I guess. So, for example, you know, Todd P. had his annual event at Cheer Up Charlie's, and it was very, like, roots, and I guess it felt it felt pretty DIY. There was also always the Fader Fort, which was in East Austin, too, but that was sort of the main huge event that was on the East Side. And over the years, I saw, probably in tune with the general gentrification of the East Side, over the years there were more and more sort of corporate official type showcases popping up and the more DIY showcases kind of getting pushed outside of the downtown area or not really happening at all. There was always a lot of really, really fun unofficial after parties and rock shows. I saw 
a lot of amazing shows, like house shows with Purex and some of the affiliated bands in the scene that were like the synth-driven stuff. And now, I don't know, it's kind of, I'd say that it felt chiller on the whole, and there were probably fewer big like Dorito stage type events, that didn't mean that the unofficial side of it was necessarily back. I sort of felt, and this is kind of in keeping with the internet, as a, the music internet as a whole, it sort of felt like there were fewer, more powerful corporate entities putting on events, such as the Apple Musics and the YouTubes. But not that many opportunities for the little guy at the same time. And that's kind of where the internet, or I feel like music, has come to be dominated by a small group of successful media platforms and streaming platforms, as opposed to when I first got in the game and was going to South By, and it was all about like the little blog showcases happening. Like Every little blog had its own showcase on the east side. What I guess what I'm trying to ask is conference festivals like South By and Miami Music Week and even Coachella, do they matter? I think they definitely matter to the young kids who are not in the music industry and don't think about these things as closely and just want to go see their favorite artists but they're more likely to try to get into the one coveted showcase that can afford to pay for big artists than to happen upon a cool DIY showcase on the east side and then have a surprise headliner who is actually really famous, if that makes sense. I went to a keynote speech by Zane Lowe, and that was very interesting. He kind of talked about his career and the changing face of music discovery through all of the stages. And he made an interesting point about how music discovery, you know, he's seen it go from a situation that was ruled by gatekeepers. So prominent music journalists. This is like dating back to, you know, he's obviously a bit older than us, so before we got in the game. But when he first got into radio and music media, there were the few people who were lucky enough to be in the press or be on the radio who were the gatekeepers of taste. And it was very industry-centric. Over the years, he's seen it growing more and more into a direct-to-fan direction and was saying that streaming services like Apple Music, they sort of operate on this notion of everything should be direct to fan. We are connecting users with music, making it available to them. But then, of course, you could say that the issue is that, yeah, but there's also these very large corporations in place that are helping that to happen. In terms of streaming services, Colin, I read that there was an announcement by SoundCloud last week that they were switching up their monetization model a bit. For DJs and producers, at least, the idea is that if you're someone that uploads mixes to SoundCloud or remixes, like a lot of people in the world that we cover, you can now in theory, make money off of those things, which wasn't the case before. So since 2014, SoundCloud has had this program called Premiere, similar to YouTube's revenue-sharing model or the revenue-sharing models that work in Spotify and Apple Music. You get a portion of the ad money that SoundCloud gets based on how many streams you get. The ways that 
that actually works aren't very like public for SoundCloud, but it's an invite-only program, and to this point, you could only be in it if you had original songs on it. So they said that people like Chance the Rapper and Little Sims like were people that were among those that had been invited to this point. But last Monday, I think it was, they said that DJs can now be a part of this too. So if you're uploading your live DJ set from Ultra Music Festival, like a big name DJ like that, you can now get money when people stream that, which is a pretty big deal if, like we do, you think that there's artistic merit in stringing together music like that. Especially in terms of remixes too, like it's kind of like crazy to think that you couldn't make any money when you're uploading something that changes a track like wholesale just because I think they didn't want to upset copyright holders before now but now that they've figured out some way around that but they didn't exactly say how. I'm interested in whether they compensate the people whose tracks appear in the mix or whose tracks are being remixed as well. I don't have any concrete information about that. It's still invite only and they haven't said publicly who's going to be invited to that so it probably doesn't mean a whole lot right now for your average SoundCloud DJ. (laughs) And it may not even give a lot of protection to those people who have had their mixes taken down over the years. I saw one of my friends tweet something like, does this mean that SoundCloud is going to like reinstate all of my mixes that they've deleted (laughs) now that they can pay people for their mixes? But it is a big deal because you can't really like as easily upload mixes to other streaming services. So this is like the first way that you can do that. Aside from YouTube, I was talking to our news editor, Anna, who wrote this story. And she was saying that she saw a lot of conversation after the fact about people who've tried to use YouTube to monetize DJ mixes. And they found that they'd had a hard time doing so because YouTube is such a visual medium. And even though it favors creators a lot on YouTube, there's a lot of partnership programs to like make money off of ads. Like DJs were just finding that they couldn't like drive people to it without some accompaniment that way. So SoundCloud's the first to offer that. I think it is important to ask how much money anybody's actually making off of this, though. I'm trying to find right now. Um, Plastician recently went on a long thing on Twitter about how his, just for the original content that his label had put out, they had gotten around 10 million streams and had grossed around two hundred dollars over yeah. the course it's like i assume it's not going to be any better no no i mean nobody that makes music makes money off of streaming but i think what soundcloud has done recently is they've kind of figured out a way to monetize because they started running ads and they created a couple of subscription-based programs and from what i understand the money to pay people for these mixes is going to come from advertising and these subscription models so i mean you know like a year ago even everyone was wondering how the fuck is soundcloud gonna make money right and it seems like they are exploring a possible option that other models have already tried and I feel hopeful that they're going to succeed. And I think it's really cool that SoundCloud, which has been traditionally a space for electronic musicians, you know, it was embraced by this community the most, I would say, is also thinking about that community in turn and saying, yeah, we understand that like DJs who put up mixes are still contributing something original and deserve to be paid for that work. But yeah, it just all speaks to the larger question of as these large companies get bigger and bigger, are they going to be able to sort of right the fundamental problem of artists not getting compensated? And will they come up with a model to make that possible? 
I hope that they do. And that kind of resonates with some stuff that I saw at South By where artists were taking to stages and they were talking about the controversial immigration clause in the South by Southwest artist contract that everyone's been talking about, which if you're unfamiliar, was a bit of kind of legalese in a contract saying that if South by Southwest artists playing official showcases broke the rules of the contract, it was possible that South by Southwest would report them to immigration services. And I'm not like a lawyer, so I don't understand the exact meaning of all of that. But basically, artists were upset about that, especially in the current climate with immigration. But also, it raised this question of why are artists playing these major festivals and not really getting compensated at all a lot of the time? I think there is this rule that South by has, and it makes sense in terms of like these immigration law that artists playing official South by Southwest showcases who are from out of town are kind of there on like a tourist visa, and they they can get away with playing because they're not being paid. And then if they go outside of the official South by Southwest showcases and play unofficial showcases where they may be getting paid, they can get in trouble because they're breaking their visa, the terms of the visa. And so it's unclear whether South by was just pointing that out to people or if they would actually punish artists for breaking their exclusivity. For what it's worth, they said that they never had, and this clause has been in the, the contract for a few years. But I would guess that it was a bunch of kind of ill-considered legalese. For sure. Um, based on my understanding of how the visa stuff works around these festivals. And it did raise the question of, well, why are artists not getting compensated for playing these major money-making festivals? And is there another model? The South by Southwest model is not uncommon either. It's used in a lot of kind of like city-based festivals. Right. Like, I'm pretty sure that CMJ, when that was still a thing, operated on a similar thing. I'm pretty sure, yeah. Because they do it under the guise that this is, like, promoting your music instead of a tour in the same way. But some of these artists will play, like, seven shows for, like, no money, basically. Yeah, I did it with my (laughs) band. And I think that this is relevant to the SoundCloud question also because it is much more likely that these artists are making money through the live show than streaming. True, yeah. You have to make a lot of, you have to be very, very famous to make money through streaming, and revenue streams typically are through playing live or licensing kind of deals. Right, so then the question is, what do you do when you're asked to play for free? Like, you have to really weigh that benefit. I don't know. (laughs) But maybe that'll change as these companies like SoundCloud and Apple figure out how to monetize. I mean, this subscription-based model and ads is already a step forward from, like, as I said before, where we were a year or two ago when people were just like, it's fucked, you're never going to make money from streaming. And now it seems like maybe you can make a little bit of money. So who knows? Maybe, you know, maybe things will change again and they will figure out some kind of way to allow artists to make a living off their recorded music again. And that will again change the weight that we put onto live performance. I think that there's a lot of changes going on in the air, and it's really hard to predict like what the artist's money-making model is going to look like in like five years. Whoever figures it out will be very rich. <laughs> mm-hmm. This is sort of in line with the underground 
artist compensation conundrum, but there are rumors right now that there is sort of a crackdown on New York nightlife and specifically underground nightlife following the Oakland tragedy. Michelle, you're working on a piece about it. Is there some foundation for believing this is true? Yeah, so right after Oakland happened, I remember everyone was freaking out in the community thinking that it was a crackdown going on because parties were getting shut down left and right. Police were visiting even legitimate clubs and asking people to like leave the club so that they can like count the number of capacity that was in the club and then make everyone go in. And everyone just felt like they couldn't do parties. And what I was interested in sort of exploring is whether that perception still persisted today because it's been about three months since Oakland and, you know, if things have bounced back or if people are still sort of living in this fear and anxiety of getting their party shut down. And so I started talking to a lot of people who throw parties, both in legal and illegal spaces, and across the board, every single person told me that they believe that there is a crackdown happening. It wasn't even like ambiguous. It was a very definitive, very convinced, yes, definitely, it is happening. Going from that, and I, and I talk to people in a variety of scenes, you know, like I talk to people who do techno raves, people who do ambient shows in like churches, people who do punk shows. So, you know, it was definitely like a cross scene thing. But what was really interesting then was the next step was I wanted to find out if the city and the NYPD would admit to having some sort of increased policing following Oakland of like local nightlife scene. And everyone knows how difficult it is to get the NYPD to talk to you. Um, They are a famously opaque institution. One of our contributors who works a lot with the police advised me to sort of just walk over to the precinct and hang out, smoke a cigarette outside, look like I'm cool, and chat out people to see what they were thinking. So that's what I did. And it actually surprisingly worked because a lot of officers seemed completely surprised when I mentioned an Oakland crackdown and they said, we have definitely not increased the policing of local nightlife. If anything, if there are more parties being shut down, it's because these neighborhoods like Williamsburg and Bushwick are becoming a lot more gentrified, and so there's a lot more neighbors complaining. And I was like, but like everyone thinks that there's a crackdown and you know people have even said that police mention Oakland when shutting down their parties and they're like nope we we don't shut down parties we just respond to complaints and so I went into the precinct and talked to even more officers in there who said the exact same thing and then I finally got an official denial from the NYPD and the FDNY and the Department of Buildings and all the various departments that sort of like deal with local event organizers and that's when the story got really interesting I think because if the city is officially denying that they are cracking down, which is sort of counter to what you would expect. I think that I expected the city to be like, yes, we are taking steps to like ensure that safety issues are addressed and sort of to make themselves look like they're taking an active role in making sure that something is being done after the Oakland fire, which was caused by an unsafe sort of DIY space that people kind of got trapped in. But then I think that what matters is that there was a perception of a crackdown. What matters is that promoters and event organizers and venue owners believe that there is a crackdown and that is hindering their willingness and ability to throw the kind of parties that they want to throw. Some promoting crews have stopped throwing parties completely because they just can't afford to get shut down. Some people have scaled back. And generally, I think just from my perspective, the scene has quieted down a lot since this time last year. Obviously, there are still cool things happening because this is New 
New York and people will always be down to do like cool things. But, you know, just compared to this time last year, shit was lit. It was so popping. And now it's like, mm, you know, it's a couple cute things happening this weekend. Um, but, you know, I think that what's wonderful about New York is that, you know, it is super resilient. People will always be like looking to throw the kind of parties that they want to be in and nightlife is never dead here completely and things will bounce back um it's just a question of when and how what i will say as someone who's been frequenting the diy scene for almost like seven or eight years now and is from the city there have been a lot of these perceived crackdowns there will be periods where things feel popping and then everyone will start saying the cops are on some mission to shut everybody down and then sometimes you will see a couple of venues get shut down but I feel like even before the Oakland fire there was palisades getting shut down for fire safety reasons and it does keep on happening but I can see how after something like the Oakland fire where even the underground people were shocked by you know whoa a lot of the things that we're doing are unsafe I can see how it really shook everyone and how that would change the perception again towards we're definitely not going to be allowed to continue this anymore or we have to be really, really careful. But I heard that there was some people in the city who are kind of taking this stuff into their own hands, like some members of the underground community. Uh, Yeah, so there's a sort of coalition called the New York City Artist Coalition that was started by a bunch of people in the scene who had seen the effects of similar crackdowns happening in other cities and were feeling like they needed to sort of mobilize and organize together as a unit. So They started having their own meetings back in January, and they've been talking directly to the city's Department of Cultural Affairs to propose sort of ways that, like, the city can improve relationships with the underground and DIY communities, because right now I think there's so much opacity and antagonism and fear going on on both sides. And this is, like, one of the first times that there's been an open conversation between the underground and the city. However, some promoters that I talk to are sort of doubtful that this coalition will be successful or effective at all because it's the Department of Cultural Affairs, which usually deals with big nonprofit arts organizations and doesn't really have that much clout over the NYPD or FDNY or the actual departments that these promoters have to deal with on a day-to-day basis. But at the same time, at least it's brought them all together. And some people that I've talked to are like, I've never seen this many people from the industry in one room together. And that alone is like really special and cool. So, you know, it it remains to be seen if this sort of large-scale mobilization will actually be effective. But I think that goes to speak to how sometimes things that seem really bad, like a crackdown, can have these unintended but really positive side effects. Yeah, and that sort of mirrors what's been going on in Oakland as well, where the city is sort of creating more of an open forum for the artists living at least in live workspaces to communicate transparently about safety conditions at their venues. They're being offered, I think, some period of amnesty in which they won't get evicted so that they can get venues up to code. Ezra, you recently took a trip to Spain and Portugal. Yeah. What did you get up to? I went to Madrid and Lisbon. I went to Madrid for a boiler room panel and event kind of thing they were doing there. And the first day was a series of panels revolving around 
nightlife, both in Madrid and Europe in general. One panel that I went to was called, I believe, The Future of Nightlife in Europe or something like that. And it was interesting. They had a very cool variety of people from the nightmare of Amsterdam to the head of Berlin Community Radio to a club promoter from Lisbon, as well as a promoter from Madrid. And they discussed a lot of the issues that are currently dominating the conversation around nightlife, both in Europe and America, whether that's gentrification, closing nightlifes, police crackdowns, all those things. There was one really, really interesting back and forth between the nightmare of Amsterdam, who seems like he's doing a really good job of promoting a healthy, sustainable nightlife scene in the city. They have a lot of 24-hour licensed clubs. They work with the city. There's a lot of opportunities for artists to play and make money versus a promoter from Russia who has faced extreme bureaucratic pushback to her attempts at throwing parties. She was trying to organize a festival in Moscow that was shut down the day before, and they tried to move it to St. Petersburg, and that didn't work out. And it was just interesting like hearing these two people discuss their drastically different experiences in, on the one hand, liberal, tolerant, Amsterdam, and on the other hand, the far less tolerant and far more restrictive government of Russia, and how those two different environments foster or don't foster nightlife in those cities. And then there was a panel about nightlife specifically in Spain, and I think the most interesting people on that were two young women who promote in Madrid, and they were talking about the challenges of the city specifically. I actually, I met up with them after the panel to grab a drink and kind of interview them about it. And they were telling me that Madrid is interesting because it's a city where a lot of people go out. It's a really big party city, but it's not necessarily like a taste forward city like New York or London or something like that. And so they're kind of like have faced sometimes an uphill battle and putting on cool events. But one of them like works at a venue where she's booked like lots of cool artists, like a lot of cool experimental artists. She mentioned Tim Hecker, just like people like that. And I think it's a small, it seems like it's a small but growing scene. They have a lot of the same issues as everywhere else does about like the government shutting down illegal raves and all, you know, like there not being enough spaces that are willing to book left of center artists. What else? She, she, she mentioned there was a big situation in, in Madrid where a promoter in some way unsafely booked a really, really big event and like five people died or something like that. And she knows for a fact that the promoter like must have been paying off the city to be allowed to overbook the space or something like that. And, th- and that led to an ensuing crackdown on event spaces, similarly to you know, what we've seen here with, with Ghost Ship and all that. And then, so you know, it's, it seems like Madrid is, similarly to other cities around, around the world, going through a lot of the same kind of like push and pull between promoters and bureaucracy. I know that one of the perceptions American music lovers have of the scene in Europe is that European artists benefit from a lot more government funding. Was that the case among the panelists that you saw? Um, I think it really varies from city to city. I think that in a place like Amsterdam, that is absolutely the case, where the government is actively working with venues to create safe spaces and 24-hour licenses and all these things that give artists the places to play and make money. I mean, they didn't discuss grants or anything like that, which obviously there is a lot more grant money available in Europe than the U.S. 
But I mean, that wasn't really a major topic of discussion. But I think just as far as like creating the kind of cities that foster a healthy nightlife where artists can play out a lot and get paid, it did seem like several of the cities that they were discussing had a lot more support from the government than you're likely to get in the U.S. It, the woman who's a proponent in Lisbon mentioned that the government has had a series of initiatives aimed at turning the nightlife industry into a big moneymaker for the city, which is not something that American cities seem to realize could be beneficial to them. That if you work with the city to foster nightlife, you could make all kinds of tax money and tourism revenue. I want to play devil's advocate for a second, though, because a lot of the artists that I spoke to from my story about the Oakland crackdown also said similar things about wanting funding from the government in order to support nightlife and how that would really help the scene. But at the same time, because of this crackdown, a lot of the parties have gone further underground and they've started this sort of like new wave of like super underground parties that's almost like harkening back to the 90s. And that's pretty cool to me to have like a return to like the pre-internet, don't even put your shit online, like super gritty basement underground vibe. And I feel like similar things are happening in Russia, which has like a really interesting rave scene because its government is so authoritarian and, um, you know, there's systematic bigotry and stuff. And so these spaces take on an extra sort of charge and specialness where you can be super free. So when governments step in to sponsor nightlife, does that end up diluting the culture in the same way that like when South by Southwest has all these big brands coming in, it dilutes the culture as well? I lived for a few years in France and both the visual artists and musicians I was hanging out with often said they benefited from sorts of government funding, be it getting free studio space or uh, participating in government-funded exhibitions or festivals or concerts. And I think they did say often that they felt that the government presence made them have to not censor themselves, but sort of lend itself to boring, right. non-confrontational art. I remember people art. in Berlin saying the same thing as well, um, because the art scene there is like very subsidized by the government. And an art critic was telling me that a lot of the most interesting art that he's seeing is not coming from Berlin. So I think there is something to be said. I'm not advocating for like lack of funding, but I think that it's a pretty complicated question about whether government funding is 100% always good for a scene. I don't think it necessarily needs to, I mean, I'm not really wasn't talking about grants at all, which is a whole nother story. But as far as like the government having an adversarial relationship with spaces, I just think on a really basic level, that makes it harder for artists to make money. You can for sure like throw really cool parties, even in the absence of any government support. But like when there aren't spaces, there's just going to be less shows and artists are just not going to get paid as much, I think. I mean, sure, you have these like really cool underground shows, but like how many actual instances of that happening is there compared to a few years ago when New York had like three or to five like major DIY spaces throwing big parties like four or five nights a week. Like I just think there's like less opportunities. Maybe just boils down to the fact that the capitalist model does not benefit artists at all and that like the socialist model where the government steps in and pays for these artists to make a living is actually what ends up helping them like survive. Definitely helps them survive. I also think that while these sorts of very underground events can be super fun. After the ghost ship fire, I myself am increasingly worried about safety. And when I go into spaces like that, I never did before, but now I'm often like, uh, I wish it wasn't here. I don't feel very safe. How can I get out of this building if it explodes? And for certain communities who need 
underground spaces to be safe in the more interpersonal sense. It's not fair that they have to then be like relegated to unphysically safe spaces. You know what I mean? Mm-hmm. So then I, after Madrid, I went to Lisbon just on vacation, but I did manage to catch a couple of electronic music events there. The most exciting one by far was on Friday night. I went to a venue called Music Box to watch a Principe Discos show. They do a monthly showcase there. Principe Discos, if you're not aware, is a a label from Lisbon that a few guys started based on going into the parts of the city that are mostly populated by people of African descent, immigrants largely from Angola and other former colonies of Lisbon who created this really interesting fusion of African dance music with just more out there electronic sounds. I went into it and was really blown away by the energy at the party. It was like totally hype, like lots of kids, like a lot of kids of, of immigrant backgrounds there all just like it was it was really it was a kind of community vibe like these DJs were playing like the style of music is called Batida and they were playing Batida remixes of big Afrobeat songs and you had lots of people in the crowd like chanting along it was, it was cool and around 5 a.m. I, I guess that the headliners were this group called Afro Killers who I'd, I'd been into for a while but I didn't know that they actually as opposed to everyone else in the lineup who were all DJs they actually play live like they have live drums which was really cool because, you know, like live drums in a club usually blows. Like, let's be honest, like somebody <laughs> drumming over a DJ set, that's usually trash, but it really worked in this situation. Shout out DJ Rafi drums. <laughs> Shout out DJ Rafi drums, yeah. Shout out when I had my birthday party at a Eugene Lang jazz frat, and I was trying to DJ, and some kid started drumming along to it. It was an <laughs> infuriating experience. But it was, it, was, it was a great party. I mean, I left at like 5.30, and it was still fully going off. Packed club, great music. So, I mean, Lisbon's a really interesting city. It has like a lot of... It's like a really interesting example of a lot of the African diaspora musical cross currents that are currently dominating so much of the conversation right now as far as like where the most interesting music is happening and to see that effortlessly take place in a club. Do you know what their government's attitude towards nightlife is? Yeah, I mean, I think that Lisbon has like one of the more liberal governments in Europe. I don't actually know the like legal specifics of like what the government has to say about nightlife there but there's a lot of there's a lot of clubs there's like the main club in Lisbon is this place Luke's which has a 24-hour license and I know that although it mostly caters to like house and techno it has also put on nights with Principe Discos it's supported the local scene I, I think it there is a lot there is support for that kind of stuff there Lisbon has decriminalized drugs they're not legal but you can't get arrested for I believe under a gram of cocaine and similarly similar amounts of, of Molly. So I think in general, it's a pretty tolerant government, and that seems like it's been helpful to the scene there. Do you think that Drake will get into Principe Discos? Yes, I think DJ Mar Fox is gonna be on a Drake song, or at least on OVO Sound Radio by like end of June at the latest. <laughs> You've been listening to The Thump Podcast, a production of Vice Media and Thump. I wanted to shout out to Tim Barnes, who engineers and edits The Thump Podcast. You can find him on Twitter at TimBarnes451. If you'd like to read some of the stories we've been talking about, please log on to our website, which is thump.vice.com. You can also follow us on social media over at twitter.com slash thump thump or facebook.com slash thump thump. Guys, you want to let people know uh, how they can keep track of your stories? You can catch me on Twitter at Ezra underscore Mark. And uh, I'm on Twitter at Outa Site Outa. I'm at Michelle Luke L-H-O-O-Q. I'm at Ad Hoc Emily on Twitter. 
If you like what you've heard, feel free to rate and subscribe on iTunes. Ratings help. The word of mouth is the only way that we get this out there. So feel free to do that and have a good one. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50% to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.